Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm an Amazon Prime member, which means I'm one of the part of one of the least exclusive clubs in the world. There are, I don't know, 200 million or so of us. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember what it was like shopping before Amazon. A ton of trips to Target and Walgreens and a lot of other places. It was, it was kind of a pain. And I also really appreciate how much Amazon has saved me over the years. A few uh, a while ago, I bought this 60-pound dumbbell, and it was actually less expensive for Amazon to deliver it to my door than it was for me to go out to Dick's Sporting Goods and buy it, which blew my mind. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not an entirely rosy picture, or maybe not. Uh, it seems like it's been harder for me to find what I want on Amazon, at least than it used to be. Uh, I love their subscribe and save system, but it's kind of a love-hate relationship. It can be maddening at times. And more generally, I'm concerned about the sort of innovations that I might not be getting because Amazon seems so dominant in online retail. Alina Khan, who's the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, I'd say she shares my concerns, uh, so much so that in late September, the FTC, along with 17 states, sued Amazon, alleging that it was, in their words, it, that it, it stifled competition on price, product selection, quality, and by preventing its current or future rivals from attracting a critical mass of shoppers and sellers, Amazon ensures that no current or future rival can threaten its dominance. Adam Kovakovich doesn't think that the FTC has much of a case, and he's the founder and CEO of the group Chamber of Progress, which is a center-left tech industry policy coalition. He's also former head of Google's U.S. policy strategy and external affairs team. I'm really happy to have him on the show today to explain what he thinks Lena Khan and the FTC are getting wrong, as well as the potential consequences of the lawsuit. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. So I, I wanted to start with my introduction, which I laid out what at least I take to be at the core of that FTC 17-state lawsuit. Is there anything in there that uh, maybe you would add or important that I left out of that? Sure. Well, I love your example of the 60-pound dumbbell, and I think it's actually useful to to describe the two parts of this case. So let me use your dumbbell example in a, to illustrate it. So there's two parts of the case. The first has to do with what's called the buy box. So if you go onto Amazon and you search for 60-pound dumbbell, you're going to see a product page for a particular dumbbell. And there are multiple sellers who are trying to be the seller of that dumbbell. But when you go over on the right-hand side and you see a box that says, like, uh, put this in my shopping cart or one-click purchase, only one seller can be selected as sort of the seller of choice, the seller who's preferenced over other sellers. And that's called winning the buy box. Sellers compete to be the seller who's sort of picked by Amazon to process that sale. It doesn't mean that other sellers can't process their sales. There's other ways of picking other alternative sellers, but they're sort of the default seller. One of the things that Amazon says is that if you as a seller are selling that dumbbell for a lower price somewhere else on the internet, you're probably not 
going to be the winner of the door of the buy box because Amazon wants to be able to guarantee to its customers that it's selling the that dumbbell at the lowest price on the Internet. Others, some sellers don't like that. The FTC's argument is that that policy prompts sellers to raise their prices off of Amazon, not on Amazon itself, but elsewhere. And so even though Amazon doesn't have any control over what sellers, how sellers price their goods elsewhere, its argument is that it's led to this increase in prices off Amazon. The second point, again, to keep with the dumbbell example, has to do with how that dumbbell gets to you. And let's say you go into Amazon and you search for 60 pound dumbbell and you see that one is labeled prime, which to you as a shopper means that's going to get to you in two days. Well, then it's sort of the question is, how does it get to you in two days? And Amazon gets that dumbbell to you in two days by requiring that that seller process their uh, sale through Amazon, what's called fulfillment by Amazon. That means putting that dumbbell in Amazon's warehouse having Amazon handle the shipping and fulfillment of that order. That involves a fee on a per product basis to Amazon of the part of the seller. And it's part of what makes Prime works. It's part of what gets that product to you in two days. Some sellers don't like that Amazon requires Prime eligible products, Prime products to be fulfilled through their network. But Amazon's argument is that this is actually the thing that allows them to get to shoppers on time. So these are the really the two parts of the argument. And I think there's a tension in both these arguments between the interests of the sellers who are mentioned 368 times in the complaint and the interests of consumers who are only mentioned 51 times. There's a big gap, I think, between their interests here. And I think that gap goes to Chairman Khan's overall approach to antitrust, which is Different from, I think, what we've seen, at least in the last few decades. And can, can you sort of explain what that approach is and how it is so different from what we've seen in, in the recent past? Sure. I think the, probably the biggest change is that historically antitrust has really concerned itself with the kind of competition that either increases prices or that really kind of um, screws consumers. And and I think that the historically there has been something what's called sort of a consumer welfare standard and antitrust, which is that a company's behavior, you know, might be um, disadvantageous to its competitors. But that but protecting competitors is not what antitrust is about. Antitrust is about making sure that consumers have options. And so a lot of times, you know, you might look at antitrust cases and say, OK, well, you know, the one company is being kind of aggressive towards its competitor. But so long as consumers are benefiting. And so long as there's a pro-consumer justification for their behavior, then that behavior is okay. I think what, you know, Lena Khan's chair of the FTC has, has tried to do is pretty explicitly take that consumer welfare standard and, you know, try to reassess it and reevaluate it, blow it up a little bit and say, look, I think that antitrust should also concern itself, in this case, with the interests of suppliers. And in this case, the supplier is the seller. But there's a lot of other big tech antitrust cases where there's sort of a supplier-like um, person. So, you know, there's a long-running Apple – there's a, a case now involving Epic Games, which makes Fortnite um, suing Apple because they don't like the terms of the Apple App Store and Apple's rules. And, you know, in, in generally speaking, Lena Khan's philosophy would sort of steer them to intervening on behalf of of Epic Games uh, against the terms of Apple. They haven't done that. That's not in their territory, but just, just to be clear. But I think that she's very explicitly trying to expand antitrust to be about helping the suppliers. The problem is that the interests of the suppliers or the sellers really conflict, I think, directly 
with the interests of, of end consumers. And I think that's not really well understood. That makes sense to me. But, but then there's another aspect of this, at least maybe there is. Uh, a while ago, my my wife said to me, it feels like our whole lives are on Amazon and, and her concerns. Well, what happens when they've locked us in and then they can just crank up the prices on us? And, and that gets to this, I think, other maybe aspect or concern among maybe the new antitrust people is that even if companies like Amazon may be acting in the interests of consumers now, they see it maybe as part of a strategy to get enough market dominance so that they can then essentially set prices and set terms, not just for suppliers, but also for consumers. I'm sure you've heard that argument before, and I'd like to get your take on it. Sure. I think it's, it's, it's an argument that Lena Khan herself in her law review paper in 2018, which was about Amazon, raised questions about. and. This is sometimes called predatory pricing, this idea that you price products way below market in order to drive your competitors out of business. And she uh, voiced concerns that Amazon could do that, even though I don't think there's much evidence, any evidence really that they have. Um, and and interestingly, though, that's not what her complaint is about. So I do think it's kind of interesting that there's this was a concern that she sort of voiced theoretically, as an academic five years ago, but it's not what they brought their complaint about. It's not this. It's not at all the subject of the FTC's complaint. I think it's a, a difficult thing for antitrust law to, um, to, to, to deal with because generally antitrust law is focused on what has happened, not what could happen. And so this fear of, well, what Amazon might do, I think is, is not something that the law really has any way of, of dealing with, to be, to be perfectly honest. I also think there's a lot of examples that are counterexamples to this point. You know, Amazon years ago bought diapers.com and there was a lot of worry that it was going to lead to exactly this dynamic in the diaper industry. Well, it turns out that people still have a lot of places they can purchase diapers. And um, and there hasn't been any kind of uh, effect like that, a loss of competition in the diaper industry or any really impact on prices. Uh, it's certainly not, an, not a bad impact on prices. And so... I do think it's very difficult to point to examples of where this has actually happened. Yeah, I get that point about not being able to, I mean, you can't, you have to focus on things that did happen and it's really hard to prove things that could have, but might not have happened. And so I'm thinking about that in the innovation space because uh, there's that issue of, well, competition is assumed to be good, both in terms of lowering prices for consumers, but it's also supposed to spur innovation. And I mentioned in the open my concern about, well, if there were real online competition, would we get better search, for instance? There was, I think recently I saw something about the parts of the indictment that were redacted being released or leaked saying that Jeff Bezos supposedly said, well, let's make search more confusing so we can get people to see more of the paid results or, or something along those lines. I might not have that right, but that's the sort of thing I wonder about. And I wonder if you think that's a reasonable concern. I think some of this stuff is sort of uh, hyperbolic in the sense of, I, I do think that the FTC is sort of selectively releasing this this is what happens when you see in these complaints the government sort of selectively excerpts things um when they first file the complaint i've heard it said that the 
the moment that a gov- the government files their lawsuit is the best day for the government because it's the day in which the defendant has yet to file any kind of counter response, right? This case will go to trial, but it won't see a courtroom for probably two to three years, right? And by the time it goes to trial, you can be assured that there will be a, you know, both a robust case offered by the government, but a robust case offered by uh, Amazon in their own defense. And so I don't, I don't make a lot of sort of, you know, the incendiary things here about kind of what's released. I do think this innovation argument is important, though, because the fact is that Amazon has invested, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars in building this vast infrastructure network. And interestingly, they used to just sell all the products themselves, right? Everything was directly owned and sold by Amazon.com. But then once they had built this in, this network, this logistics network, that's when they decided to open up to sellers. And that's what sellers who are now complaining, you know, have taken advantage of for years. And so I do think that, you know, that and it, it just it's like it's easy for take for granted because we now you know we all have loved and appreciated Amazon's um, speed and efficiency for years, but like the fact that that product gets to you within a day or sometimes hours is the result, direct result of Amazon investing so much in these in this infrastructure, and so for them that is their innovation, right? Their innovation is actually getting that product to the customer less expensively, more quickly. That's their you know, their customer delight. That's what they're aiming for. For other services, it might be a little, might be a little different, but I do think, you know, they have invested a lot of uh, funds, a lot, a lot of uh, money in that infrastructure network, which is, you know, one of the reasons why they're, they're so good at this. In, in looking at Amazon's control, maybe that's too strong of a word, dominance in this market, it seems to me there are a couple of things that we need to consider. Is if we're looking at how dominant one company is, it's well how we define that market and then the market share within that definition. And so if we define this market as online retail, now a- Amazon might disagree with that. In fact, I know they do in some instances, but still, if we go with that definition, I think Amazon has something like 38% of the online retail market. Walmart's a super distant second at 6.3%. So something like six times the market share, your closest competitor. That to me suggests that Amazon is pretty clearly dominant in this market. And I wanted to get your take on whether or not this is the right way to define the market. And if so, whether those sort of ratios or percentages mean that Amazon is very dominant in in this market. One of the things you see in every antitrust case brought by the government is that the government agency argues for the narrowest possible market. And so they always want to say that the market is really narrow And therefore, the company in question dominates that market. And generally speaking, you know, the company has to have a, you know, 60 percent share, let's say, um, of a market in order to be considered dominant. So what the FTC did in this case is they said the market, there were two markets, one they called the market for online superstores. And they said Amazon has a 60% share in that market. They didn't say who the competitors were, but you can guess that they probably include, say, Walmart and Target. Um, They have a separate market for the fulfillment services uh, argument. But as you say, most of the independent analysts who've looked at this, who've looked at this space even before this case being brought, has said, you're exactly right. Amazon has about 38% of online retail and then all retail, they have about 3.5%. Those are far below the thresholds for anti-competitive, right? It doesn't matter. It's not, it's not 
super important, it's really not important at all, that Amazon's percentage might be multiples of Walmart's if if Amazon's percentage is only 38%. That's not a high enough percentage to sort of prove dominant. So that's why the FTC has picked this online superstore market definition. Then when this gets to trial, the key question will be, is that in fact a, a fairly defined market? And what will happen is Amazon will bring in probably lots of evidence to suggest that that's not how consumers shop. They don't think of it that way. They'll probably do a ton of consumer surveys. They'll show, you know, probably ample evidence of consumers doing comparison shopping across online and offline and so forth. And so I just I think all of that, you know, this is a pretty standard aspect of antitrust cases where you have the government arguing for a narrow market and the the defendant will argue for a, a broad market. And basically that gets decided at trial um, on the basis of economic evidence. Given the massive logistics network that Amazon has put together, which is a truly astounding sort of thing. <laughs> Again, the, the dumbbell getting to me that cheaply, that quickly just blew my mind. Do you feel that the barriers to entry for any potential competitor for Amazon kind of at that level are so high to make it essentially impossible. I mean, Walmart, right, this this retail giant uh, simply can't seem to compete at all with all of its resources. And so is that a is that a concern in any way, do you think? Yeah, I don't think it's a particularly a barrier to entry argument here, because I don't think realistically you know, anyone's talking about how difficult it is to like build your own Amazon. Like that would be difficult. Yeah. <laughs> We'd all agree like that yeah. would be, that would be difficult. Um, the question is really like, what choice does the seller have? Right. So they've decided to organize this lawsuit around the kind of the complaints of sellers. And then you have to look at, okay, well, you know, let's take a closer look at these sellers. I think there's a very compelling argument that a lot of the sellers that are being discussed in this case essentially have built their business on Amazon's marketplace. So as I said earlier, Amazon didn't build this logistics network. They used to sell all the products directly. They then opened it up many years ago to to third-party sellers. And what that has caused over time is sellers or people getting into this business um, essentially is arbitrage, right? So they, they will find some inexpensive goods from China that might be popular and they'll become you know, the seller of record. And so it's not as if they were doing that. Many of these sellers were not doing this before Amazon came along. They're doing, they, they got into this space because Amazon made it possible. But I'm sure there are some retailers, there are some sellers who who are looking to sell a product and, you know, ski equipment, let's say, right? And so right now the choice might be, okay, I can either sell my products through Amazon Marketplace or what are my other options? And there are lots of other options. Again, as you say, they can use Walmart's marketplace. A very, very popular option is for a seller to do what's called direct to consumer. So when you're on, you know, Instagram and Facebook and you see those ads for products in between posts from your friends, if you click on one of those ads, it's going to take you directly to the retailer site. And more often than not, that retailer sales are actually fulfilled and managed by a service called Shopify, which, which is kind of a leading competitor to Amazon. And, you know, Amazon and Shopify are competing for retailers or for for sellers to choose them based on how many customers they can reach, what their fees are, what the return on investment are. And, you know, there are sell- sellers are actively 
you know, trying out both platforms and both options to figure out kind of what makes sense for them. So I, I think that there's a lot of possibilities for, you know, sellers, sellers, sure, who choose to sell on Amazon, they have access to a big, potentially pretty large customer base, but it's not the only option for them. I guess thinking about this, I'd be more sympathetic to the argument that Khan raised in that paper she wrote when she was uh, an academic or was it uh, in, in school, I guess, than what the actual argument seems to be. And thinking about what's involved in this lawsuit, it seems kind of thin, I guess. And, and so I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, well, it's not just the FTC, though. It's the FTC and 17 states. And that makes me wonder, well, either I'm missing something and it's not as thin as I think, or there's some other reason why they're filing this, even if they don't expect to succeed on the merits. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, I think it's it's a really great point that the arguments in this case are different than the arguments that she made as a in her law school paper. But I think that so, you know, you want to say, OK, well, you know, there's some evolution, <laughs> some potential, you know, at least open mindedness. But on, on the other hand, I think what's com what is the common thread is that, you know, she decided five years ago that Amazon was a problem. And, you know, the way they approach this at the FTC is. You know, she she created an Amazon team two years ago to investigate Amazon. And when you do that, you're not going to you're not going to not bring a case. Right. Like it's just in some ways you're you're a target. You know, you, you you've you identify your target and then you figure out what the problem, what behavior is you're going to find problematic. Interestingly, both of these aspects of this case, both the fulfillment point and these this buy box question were previously looked at last year by the European Commission. And the European Commission actually reached a settlement with Amazon on both of these points. Similarly, the UK government also in the process of reaching a settlement. These cases, a similar case on the buy box point was thrown out of federal court two years ago. The case was brought by the DC Attorney General. There are plaintiff's cases on this. There's already a California AG case on the buy box argument. So the actual arguments the FTC ended up bringing are in some ways a bit stale they've been actually been brought in some cases settled by others i think that's a good that is a good point but i do think you know it's actually worth saying the the number of ags state AGs who joined her complaint are small relative to some of the the number of ags who've joined some of the other recent department of justice cases against google on the antitrust front and i think that's fundamentally because amazon prime is a really popular service you know as you said in your introduction you know something like a, a, a half of all americans subscribe to amazon prime most people love it they're very satisfied our organization chamber of progress has done a ton of voter polling on this question people are very satisfied of it on it you don't see people marching on washington demanding the government do something about Amazon Prime. This is a service they're really happy with. When, when I look at the states that are involved in that lawsuit, I mean, it, it's a little bit bipartisan, but it seems like it's mostly liberal Democratic states. And of course, this is a Democratic administration, uh, FTC. Do you get a sense that this is an approach to maybe not antitrust in general, but Amazon that is more popular left of center than right of center? And if so, why do you think that might be the case? Well, I agree with you. It's more, it's definitely been more pop. There are more Democratic states on the complaint um, than Republican states. But I, I think the overall number of states is just less. And so to me, that's the more interesting things. I, I To the extent that any Democrats might be feeling like 
Amazon is less popular among Democrats. That's actually completely wrong, <laughs> interestingly enough. So again, our organization uh, surveyed voters earlier this year, and they, we actually found that Democrats, 71% of Democratic voters were Amazon Prime members versus only 62% of Republican voters, which so is still really high. But point is actually Democrats are bigger Amazon fans than Republicans. And so I just, I'm not sure a lot of Democratic policymakers fully appreciate that. So if, if they're doing it, they're not doing it because their constituents want them to do it. They're doing it for our own good, right. whether we know it or not. I well, I, I, yeah, and I suspect some of them didn't join the case because they are aware of their, you know, their constituents being happy with Amazon. And looking at this more broadly, this is not the first sort of big antitrust lawsuit that Connors brought at the FTC. There have been multiple lawsuits and the record, the track record hasn't been great so far. And there was a there was a New York Times article a little while ago that you were quoted in and you said, all these court losses are making their threats look more like a paper tiger. And I get your point there. But then I thought, well, if you're one of these companies, the simply knowing that the FTC has an increased willingness to file suit against you and that, of course, you'll have to defend that lawsuit. And that's not a cheap or easy thing. Does that maybe achieve some of what the FTC wants and alter your behavior in some way? Uh, what do you think about that? I think that was true for the first, say, year and a half of, of Chairwoman Khan's tenure at the FTC, but I don't think it's true any longer. You know, she boasts about companies that, it, for example, abandoned their merger plans right after uh, the FTC raised questions about them. And what I think is increasingly true is it used to be the case, for example, the, the FTC, when they would assess mergers, they would do what's called clearing a merger. So they would investigate it, but then they would generally say, okay, we've looked at it. We don't see any problems. Right. And one of the things Chair Khan first did was she basically scrapped this practice. So instead, what she does is for, when companies are merging, she sends them sort of a form letter that says, look, you know, you, you can, you, you know, we can still challenge this merger at any time. And what they're basically saying is they're kind of giving their some, themselves, you know, maximum optionality to some to come sue. But the reality is that that is also paper tiger because they don't sue. Right. And most of most company and, and when they have sued, for example, they have sued against um, Meta's acquisition of a VR fitness company called within and Meta ended up winning. And so I think increasingly when they lose, most companies are far are, are more emboldened to say, look, we'll, we'll litigate this. It might take us a couple of years and cost us a lot of money, but um, we think we will. This happened with with Microsoft's acquisition of Activision. Um, the FTC, they actually made a, an offer to the FTC. The FTC rejected it. They ended up going to court. Court sided with Microsoft and Activision and the FTC lost. So I think actually the number of companies that sort of abandon their plans and result in, in response to pressure is going to decrease. And the number of companies that say, well, we'll, we'll take our chances in court is going to increase based on kind of the odds. And, and so in that instance, it would mean that uh, if it doesn't change behavior, it still incurs costs both on the government side, and that comes out of taxpayer dollars, and on the company side. And presumably, to some extent, those costs would be passed on uh, to consumers or suppliers and to consumers. And so it, it's sort of a lose-lose in that yeah. instance. Well, you make a I, I like the way you put it because you said you were you know talking about companies altering their behavior and historically the way that the FTC would get most of its quote unquote wins 
is through settlement. So they would go to a company, either a merging company or a, a single company, and they would say, look, we found some issue with your behavior. We want to, um, you know, let's engage in settlement conversations basically to negotiate a change to your behavior where the company agrees in writing to change their behavior. And that's historically how it's worked. That's what, you know, how the FTC has gotten more most of its wins. Colin has pretty explicitly rejected that approach, certainly in the antitrust realm. She does, has done a, a couple times on the consumer protection side of the FTC's mandate. But I think that's because she her her philosophical critique is that when the FTC has accepted settlements, that has done nothing to expand the boundaries of the law and the FTC's power. And she is way more interested in expanding um, the sort of sweep of antitrust law than she is getting then she isn't altering companies' behavior. If she was interested in altering companies' behavior, she would pursue the settlement path, which she's disinterested in. This Amazon case is a great example because, as I said earlier, this these two points are things that Amazon did alter their behavior in Europe in response to a settlement. And if Khan wanted to, she could certainly pursue the same strategy where you know she sat down with Amazon and negotiated changes to their behavior She's not interested in doing that. She wants to bring a case. So, um, and I, you know, the, the case probably won't be litigated for until, you know, she, there will not be a result in the case until probably long after she has left the FTC. I always assume with cases like this that it's going to end in a settlement uh, many years later. And I was wondering, this specific case, is that sort of what you expect to happen? Or do you think Amazon's just going to, push it all the way because they don't think the FTC has much of a case or what you're given all your experience in, in, in this, these sort of instances, what do you think might be most likely to happen here? Oh, I don't think it's the company. I don't think it's Amazon's position that would, I think Amazon would, would settle these questions. They already, as I said, they already have settled these questions in Europe. I think that con and the FTC don't want to settle. And so um, that's, that's not there. So I, I don't, I think your assumption used to be true, but is no longer true. Again, the case of you know Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, Microsoft came to the to the FTC to Lena Khan and said, you know, here's a here's a compromise, here's something we would accept as a settlement. She rejected it. They went went to court, and, and Microsoft told the court, well, here's the settlement we offered to the FTC, and the court said that's a pretty good settlement. <laughs> the FTC, you should have taken that. So you know, I just think that practically speaking, um, the the Khan is pretty thoroughly rejected settlements. Could a could a successor change that view? Yeah, yeah, they might change their view. They might change their strategy. That's what happened in the Microsoft case. They litigated the government litigated that. They had a win, then they had a loss, and they ended up settling in the next administration. So that could definitely happen. I guess then the overall strategy of Khan is sort of puzzling to me. Either she must think that the FTC has a some sort of chance of winning if she doesn't want to settle, or she thinks, and you mentioned she just wants to expand and maybe impart the FTC's power. But to what end? If you expand your power and you keep on losing these cases and not changing behavior, I guess I'm kind of scratching my head as to what the point is. Well, I kind of call it a YOLO strategy. You only live once. <laughs> um, which I think is okay. what it is, to be perfectly honest. I I think that, you know, to, just to be fair to her for a moment, I think that um, – her view and the view of sort of her ideological compatriots is that this kind of Obama era approach of settlements, getting behavior altering changes and not litigating as much. It was overly conciliatory towards business. 
what I think her, her critique fails to appreciate is that the law isn't currently as expansive as she'd like it to be. And so the reason sometimes for these settlements was because in the often cases that was that was an assured win. Um, you know, bird in hand being better than two in bush, right? Like it was an assured win on the part of government, the government. And I don't know that. And I think, I think this is a little bit like, oh, let's, let's try, like, let's try this other thing. Well, maybe we could get more. Maybe we could get the law expanded or the law will never expand if we don't try. Right. And so it's a little bit like, yeah, we're probably going to lose. I would add too that I think there's a little bit of an undercurrent or not so much of an undercurrent. This is something that she's talked about openly that if, if the FTC were to lose a case like this, then her hope is that it would prompt Congress to change the laws, right? That like everybody, you know, hates Amazon as much as she does. And so if Amazon wins, then Congress will rise up and, and change the laws. I just don't think that's going to be true either. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the, the law on this because most antitrust law was written in a much earlier era and didn't anticipate things like the online world and big tech and that. And so do, even if you don't agree that antitrust law should be expansive or changed in the way that Lena Khan does, do you think that our antitrust law is, at least in regards to big tech, somewhat outdated and needs to be revised? I think it depends on what your objective is, right? I mean, so I think if, you're, if your concern is they just seem really big and powerful and something needs to be done, then I guess. But I, what I found is that there's a gap. I think a lot of people would agree with that, that statement. There's, you know, something needs to be done, right? Or they have a lot of power. That's, you know, 80% of people probably agree with that, right? But, um, but then the question is what should be done, right? What's the thing that you really want done? So you, you know, you, you kind of acknowledge, you know, some trepidation about Amazon, which I understand. We're Americans. We don't love big things. We generally talk about big things pejoratively. But what's the change specifically that you'd want government to effectuate or to enforce on Amazon? Most people can't name that, right? Most people don't want the product to be made worse. And, you know, you, you talked about, OK, well, you know, you, you actually have things where you'd like it to work a little better. But that's pretty disconnected from the issues in this case, right? Arguably, if Khan got her way on these points, then sellers might rejoice, but consumers might see higher prices and, frankly, products getting to their doorstep slower. But that's not a good result. So that's why I think there's an interesting gap between um, this kind of general, oh, we should do something about big tech. And instead, we should move on to the phase of the debate where we sort of say, well, what should we do, right? What are the pros and cons of this particular idea or this particular lawsuit? Uh, that's a more fruitful conversation to have. And do you think that tech is in many ways or in some ways fundamentally different from other markets, other goods and services that it might need specific laws focused on it? Or do you think general antitrust law is enough? I think there's a I think general antitrust law is sort of underappreciated um, in terms of, you know, its focus on behavior that does harm consumers. And so, for example, there was just a big antitrust uh, ruling uh, two weeks ago against the National Association of Realtors for how they do real estate commissions. And that case has a which, by the way, the government wasn't a party to that case has a stands a real strong potential of really transforming in a positive way. Um, house sales and reducing commissions, making them far more competitive than they've been before. Another example, there's a grocery uh, store merger 
before the FTC right now. And I think there's a compelling case that grocery store mergers probably do increase prices for consumers. Um, but in the area of big tech, I think the one challenge is that I, a, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of the services are free, right? And a lot of the services, or like if you look at Amazon, Amazon has lowered prices, right? I mean, Amazon's effect on prices has generally been a very positive one. And so, you know, so I think Khan has had to resort and others have had to resort to sort of these kind of out there theories um, in order to justify bringing any case against Amazon. And I just sort of look at that and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's take a step back here. Like most people really value that Amazon is great in terms of customer service and delivery and has had a you know very positive effect on bringing down prices. So let's let's you know, let's just slow this down a little bit, because is this really if you look at the the, the full scope of issues that you'd like government to take action on. Is this even in the top 10? I I doubt it. I get a sense, too, that there's this sort of preemptive logic at work, right, where the thinking is, well, okay, maybe Amazon's only at 38 percent or whatever, how you define the market. But if we allow them to keep on going or if we allow this merger to happen, while we don't see any danger now, we're looking five, 10 years down the line. It's better to take care of this stuff now than when the actual harm has been committed. Now, I see some flaws in that logic. I'm sure you do, too. But I wanted to get your thinking on that. Well, that is not the FTC's argument in this case. Their argument is very much that, you know, it's an online superstore market and Amazon has 60% share and Amazon dominates it. So that's not the case in the, in the case of Amazon. I do think if you look at this case I mentioned earlier, which is this um, virtual reality acquisition by Meta, which was a year ago, it was a some small company called Within. They did a, um, a basically one major game that was in the VR fitness space. And part of the FTC's lawsuit against that deal was exactly the theory you're describing, which is this idea that, oh, this space is going to be monopolized by, you know, that the meta is going to monopolize this space that's in its early stages through this acquisition. And, um, and again, the FTC lost. I think part of it was the F the court sort of said, look, like this is very early for, you know, the metaverse and for virtual reality fitness. And are, you know, is this something that even massive members of people want to do? And um, and and by the way, like, you know, this probably competes, competes against other forms of fitness, too. So this that was their argument in that case, to be clear. And, and it did not it did not go in their favor. The judge, you know, didn't completely toss the theoretical their theoretical ability to bring. I think it was called a potential future competition case. But, you know, it's an uphill battle. Yeah, that that phrase, potential future competition, I got to say, it makes me a little bit nervous if the government is deciding what might be bad in the future. That, yeah, I don't know, that's well, not well a totally. And, and I and I mean, so is another interesting case. So, you know, many years ago before Meta was Meta and it was Facebook, it acquired um, Instagram and WhatsApp. And when the when both of those services were acquired, they were pretty small. They weren't tremendously successful. They weren't even really commercially viable on their own. And, and Facebook did a very good job of integrating those services, frankly, cleaning them up, adding content moderation, giving them a business model, ad support in the case of Instagram, um, bringing, again, content moderation to what's WhatsApp. And really, like, you know, I, I think most acquisitions fail, but they did a good job of actually having that one work well. and. Yet, and these are, this was 10 years ago, right? Um, yet the Trump administration in its waning days brought a case against Meta 
for seeking to unwind those two deals. And what they were basically arguing in this case was, you know, Meta has monopolized personal social networking and that and that, you know, um, Meta has almost done too good a job of integrating Instagram and WhatsApp into its services. I don't think that's fair either, because that's really sort of penalizing the company for doing a good job. And it's also historically revisionist because these were not Instagram and WhatsApp were not you know, big, impressive apps at the time they were acquired. The acquisition was actually, both acquisitions were actually approved by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and so I think it's a little bit of historical revisionism to kind of punish the company for, for doing so well and in integrating them. Do you think that this approach that we're seeing from the FTC at this point, and, and also there are others who seem to be very much on board on this. Do you see it as kind of a blip, a passing trend, or do you think that this might actually take hold and and be something that's of greater concern for better or for worse in, in the future? Well, I think these big tech antitrust cases are are sort of here to stay. There's currently a big case going on against Google in federal court in Washington over its uh, deals to be the default search engine on. Apple Safari and Mozilla Firefox and, and Samsung devices. Uh, in the next spring, there in the early part of next year, the FTC's case against Meta that I was just describing will come to court. Um, then the DOJ's case against Google over advertising technology will come to court. There's this Epic V versus Apple case. There's an Epic. So, you know, there's a lot of cases. And I just think that that makes sense to me. I mean, because the fact is, like, you're a big company, you're successful. You have a lot of users, a lot of money. Look, it's you're going to face a lot of scrutiny. That just comes with the territory. I think some of these cases are ill-advised because I think they they started from a presumption of, oh, I have a target and I need to come up with a case against this target, as opposed to I'm looking at this industry, right? And I'm and I'm going to look for behavior that may be troublesome. I think this sort of target-driven lot litigation is not as likely to succeed because it's um, it then sort of puts the arguments together, legal arguments kind of hastily in order to justify the case as opposed to really looking at, you know, looking at an industry, looking at behavior first. Well, that was very uh, illuminating. And uh, Adam uh, Kavakovich, I want to just thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me and kind of explain some of the details of uh, antitrust and the FTC and big tech. Thanks so much. Absolutely. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there at the $10 a month level or more. You get to actually be part of the episodes J and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our 
wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.